the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Not only should we operate by a clear discernment of the timing of God for our lives, But here's this other part of this verse that encourages me. You know, no one could harm Jesus because his time and the time for him to die on a cross was God's providential plan. You know, all the days for me, the psalmist says, are numbered in his book before one of them came to be. There is a beginning day and there's an ending day for me. There's a beginning day and there's an ending day for you. Nothing in this world happens without God knowing. Every moment is created by Him. Every birth, life, and death. He knew before you took your first breath when your last will be. He's completely in control. So why worry? Today, Pastor Gary will urge you to let go of having power over how and when things will happen. Don't spend time concerned over things you can't control. You can't change God's timetable but you can't submit to His will. Choose to follow Him and see what He has in store for you. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John, chapter 7, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. And Jesus, of course, is, you know, God in flesh, so he, he, he kind of doesn't need to go to school because he kind of knows all things. But, um, but they're amazed. Hey, this guy is pretty smart here. How did he get all this? He didn't go to, to rabbi seminary. Well, verse 16, Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Notice he's making a claim there to being without sin. There's nothing false about him, about me. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? Man, this is a strong claim that he's making. He's saying, you, you want to judge me, yet you don't even keep the law, and I do. So why would you want to kill me? And they answer, because, you know, what else can you say except, you know what? You just are demon-possessed. That's what they say to him. You're, you're demon-possessed, because we don't have a good answer for that, so we're just going to say, you're, you're demonic. You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? You're fabricating this. Nobody's trying to kill you. Yeah, yeah. Jesus said to them, I did one miracle. And I'll explain what he's referring to. I did one miracle, and you are all astonished. 
Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, from Abraham, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? All right, pause there before we read the last sentence. He's referring to what happened in John chapter 5 when he healed the man who was paralytic around the pool of Bethesda. Remember that story? And and even though he's done more than that miracle, when he talks about I did one miracle, he meant I've done one miracle here in the temple court area. That's the one miracle he did at the temple court. In John chapter 5. Here's that paralytic guy lying around the pool, and he has no one to help him in when the water gets stirred, and Jesus steps over all the other who were diseased and lame to heal the one guy that God directed him to. Now, the unfortunate part about it was that it was on the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day, you're not supposed to do any work. And the, and the, the skeptics and the critics saw what Jesus did by healing that man in John chapter 5 on the Sabbath as breaking the Sabbath. So what does Jesus do? He says, okay, here, reason with me a little bit. There was a particular law about, of course, you know, refraining from work on the Sabbath, but he gives this example. He says, now, wait a minute. Moses commanded that a baby boy should be circumcised on the eighth day, and that was the command. And by the way, there's beauty in everything that God decides because on the eighth day, a baby's eighth day, we now know medically that vitamin K is released in the blood system, which is the clotting agent. So it's incredible how God would say, just wait till the eighth day, because God kind of knows how we're made and designed since he kind of did the handiwork. He was like, I know that I don't release vitamin K until the eighth day, and you're going to need some of that blood clotting agent before you start circumcising little boys. So wait till the eighth day. Anyway, in God's infinite wisdom, that was the day. Well, under the law, if in fact the eighth day fell on the Sabbath you were to still circumcise that little boy. And you weren't guilty of breaking the Sabbath because it was something that was necessary to be done. And so Jesus says here, here's your own law where Moses says, of course, by God, that you can circumcise on the eighth day even if it falls on the Sabbath. Here I go healing a man on the Sabbath day for his good. And you want to kill me over this? So he uses the law in in his own defense to help them to see their own narrow-minded view. And then he says something here that's very important. I want you to notice with me in verse 24, he adds, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Now, I love this verse because I get so tired of hearing people say, and you, you know people have said this, maybe you've even said this, don't judge me. Okay? Now, there's some truth to that. There's some truth to that, but I want you to note with me that Jesus actually calls us to make judgments. That's what he says right there. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. But here's what we need to be aware of. In this passage here, there's a difference between being judgmental and making right judgments. There is a big difference. Because the first part of what he says there has to do with being judgmental. When he says, stop judging by mere appearances. Being judgmental is evaluating appearances without all the facts. And you know how hurtful that is when somebody has been judgmental of you and they've made assumptions and they've said things about you and they have no idea what they're talking about because they didn't have all the facts. But they made an assessment and an evaluation and a judgment as if they had all the facts and they didn't. 
That's being judgmental. And Jesus says, stop doing that. We got to stop being judgmental when we look and just by mere appearance, without having all the information or all the facts, draw conclusions. That is dangerous. That is hurtful. That ruins people's reputations. That damages friendships and relationships. Stop making judgments by mere appearances without having all the facts. But the second part is make a right judgment. And the way we make a right judgment is by evaluating actions with the truth. Now I'm going to I'm going to kind of tread out here and in, into some delicate controversial issues, but for example, Right now we have this whole battle in our country over same-sex marriage and, and, and all of this. It's, it's just a mess what's going on right now. Supreme Court heard arguments two weeks ago. They're going to make a decision this June about whether or not they're, they're going to deem our nation to be recognized as a same-sex nation across all 50 states. Now, so be in prayer about that. If someone presents to you, hey, you know, I've come out of the closet and whatever the deal is. And you have an opinion about it, and your opinion is, in love and with grace, hey, God, God's word says that that's an inappropriate lifestyle. You will hear someone say, stop judging me. Now, is that judgmental or is that making a right judgment? Because the, the, the fact is that unless we're really willing to embrace the truth and embrace it in love, we will never be of any help to somebody who needs to know the love and the freedom and the grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. You know, again, this is a very delicate issue these days. We're up against a culture right now that is going to push back on that subject. But what I'm saying to you is, whether it's that issue or a multitude of other issues where people are going to accuse you of being judgmental, you need to stop and you need to ask yourself, have I arrived at this conclusion based on just assumption, appearances, without knowing all the facts, or have I, in fact, evaluated it based on the truth of God's word and the actions of the individual, which are either obvious or because they've declared that this is their action and activity? So... The only way that we're going to impart life to people, this is the part that Jesus is saying here, is if you make right judgments. Right judgments can sometimes be interpreted as being judgmental, but as long as you're doing it with the right motive and in love and with grace and based on truth and not appearances but on action, then you are actually trying to do something to help and to benefit another person. You know, we can't just be devoid of a conscience And a lot of times, unfortunately, now I see our nation and our culture just kind of absent of a moral compass as if to say, we can't make any evaluations. We can't say anything that is right or wrong. We can't determine this to be true or false because then that's being judgmental. Not necessarily. We, We are required and we're called upon to look at certain subjects, certain issues, certain matters, and engage a moral compass that is given to us through the truth of God's word and to be able delicately and lovingly to say, sorry, this is right. Sorry, this is wrong. This is true. This is false. This is good. This is bad. 
And we say that based on the truth of the word of God. And Jesus calls upon us to make right judgments. If we decide no longer to operate by any kind of a moral compass, we have then given over our nation and our families and our communities to just moral anarchy. Where anybody can just do whatever you want because nobody anymore wants to stand up and say, sorry, that's wrong. And yes, amen, that's right. Does everybody understand this? We are not to just be absent of that moral conviction and that moral compass. But I'm going to tell you this. The more our our culture continues to go the direction it's going, it'll be very, very unpopular for you to just simply say with conviction, again in love, that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. You're going to be told a lot of things and you're going to be called a lot of names if you operate in love based on the truth of God's word to stand for what is right and to declare certain things wrong. Everybody understand? If you haven't experienced it already, it's coming. Okay? It's coming. But there needs to be a moral fiber and a moral backbone to your life. And this is what Jesus is talking about. There's a difference between being judgmental. We don't want to be that. But we do want to make right judgments. We do want to stand for what is true. We want to live our lives in such a way that we are not hypocritical, but we're living that truth. We're presenting truth in love. We're wanting people to understand the truth because if you know the truth, the truth will set you free, and that truth is Jesus. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. So it's not a wrong thing to assess and evaluate, but you just got to be careful. Are you doing it on appearances or are you doing it on actions? Are you doing it without without the facts or are you doing it based on truth? So let's read on. Verse 25, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask. Now, here, here's where you're going to see all these questions. These, these people are just so confused. They're, they're like, well, isn't this, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? And here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from, and when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. <laughs> really? I mean, of course they're going to know where he's from. Do you remember when Jesus was born and the Magi came to offer gifts and they stopped in Jerusalem to ask for directions? Yes, men can ask for directions. (laughs) And they ask, you know, where is he who was to be born king of the Jews? And Herod calls the chief priests and teachers of the law and says, well, where where does Scripture say that he was born king of the Jews? And they say in Bethlehem, they quote from Micah the prophet, they know. So these people are just, you know, they're throwing around questions. They're like, well, isn't this the guy they're trying to kill? And why aren't they speaking up? And is he the Christ? And well, nobody's supposed to know where the Christ is from. So, you know, there's a mixture of confusion in all of this. Well, verse 28 says, and then Jesus still teaching in the temple courts cried out. Yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him. But I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Now, now we get what he's saying here, right? Because he's talking about the father and he's come, you know, the, the incarnation of God where God, you know, condescends to our level, takes on flesh. So Jesus is like, I'm from above and the one who sent me and the father. Is but they're sitting there going, what, what dude is he talking about? Who he's come from. And so look at verse 30. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because here we go. His time had not yet come. His time had not yet come. 
not only should we operate by a clear discernment of the timing of God for our lives, but here's this other part of this verse that encourages me. You know, no one could harm Jesus because his time and not, the time for him to die on a cross was God's providential plan. You know, all the days for me, the psalmist says, are numbered in his book before one of them came to be. There is a beginning day and there's an ending day for me. There's a beginning day and there's an ending day for you. And nothing's going to happen until it's your time. Now, I know some people throw that term around like, you know, nothing's going to happen before, but it's true. It's true. You know, I'm not, I don't really particularly enjoy flying, to be honest with you. You know, because I, I mean, it just, you know, I always feel like, hey, you know, it's not like if we, if we, if something goes wrong, you can just pull off on the side of the road because we're up 35,000 feet. And whoever really listens anyway to that whole announcement about, did you ever, the first time you flew, did you ever do this the fir- very first time? And I, I had out the, the little guide, the little paper guide in the back of the, of the chair in front of me. And I'm looking at where's the nearest exit. I'm counting the rows. You know, I'm like, let me, let me feel this flotation device under my seat. I want to make sure I know where that is and all that kind of, and then, you, you know, after you fly a while, you're like, you know, la di da di da. You got your earbuds in and you don't even care what the person is saying anymore. And you just have kind of tuned them out. All right. Because at some point you're like, I don't know a single person who has ever been helped by their flotation device. (laughs) But I don't like flying. And yet, the thing that comforts me is, if it's not my time, it's not my time. And this can't be rushed. Because if it's not my time, it's not my time. Now I will be honest, sometimes I look around the plane and I look at other people and I think, I wonder if it's their time though. (laughs) You know. But I suppose if it is their time, it's my time too. So it's all going to work out. But, you know, but take heart here. It's, it's, it's not the time. It's not yet the time. Well, verse 31, still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, and here, and here they go with still more talking here. When the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? I mean, it's a decent question. They're like, you know, this guy kind of does a lot of good stuff here. If he isn't the Messiah... If we're looking for the real Messiah, it's kind of crazy to think that that is going to do more miracles than what this guy is doing. Well, verse, verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Okay, again, we know what he's talking about. He's going to die on a cross, and he's going to ascend to heaven. He's going to go back to heaven from which he came. But it just creates confusion for them because they don't have ears to hear because they don't, they don't have a relationship with him. So it says then in the following verses that the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? And will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. And now here, verse, verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast. Okay, so remember Feast of Tabernacles, right? This is the feast. This is why he's in Jerusalem. I want you to notice here, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. 
Now pause there a moment because John helps us to understand what he meant by that, but I want you to understand what is happening here in the temple area and why Jesus uses this moment to say what he just did. During the Feast of Tabernacles, it was seven days, and eighth day was a sacred assembly just to do no rest. For each of the seven days of the feast, there was kind of a parade that happened throughout the temple area there in Jerusalem. The priest would take a golden pitcher, and he would go down to the pool of Siloam, and he would fill up the golden pitcher with water, and he would bring it back up to the temple area, and the streets would be lined with people, and they'd be shouting and clapping and celebrating and singing, and the priest would bring this golden pitcher of water, and he would pour it out. It's called a, an offering of libation. It would be a, a, a drink offering. It would be a, a water offering. And he would also have another golden bowl, a, a pitcher, and it would be filled with wine. And the water and wine would be poured out at the base of the altar there at the temple. The priest would do this each day for seven days. And there would be this celebration and this rejoicing. Now here's why he would do this. The water in particular was a reminder that for the 40 years of wilderness wandering, God provided water for us from the rock in the desert. And let's never forget that God is the source of our provision. And so he would go down, get the the pitcher filled of water from the pool of Siloam, go back up to the temple area, to the altar, pour it out there at the base of the altar. And on the last day, the seventh day, some say, well, this maybe have been the eighth day, but it depends what commentary you read, either the seventh day or the eighth day, the last and greatest day of the feast, I tend to think it's the seventh of the seven days, because the eighth day they, they didn't do anything. On this last and greatest day, here's what the high priest would do. Pour out the water at the base of the altar. At the same time then would read, and I'm going to read to you, you don't need to turn there, Isaiah 12, 3, it says this, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Poured it out, and then would read Isaiah 44, verse 3, in addition, which says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. You hearing that? Here's the here's the priest as he's pouring the water on this last and greatest day and reading there from Isaiah 44:3 For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants and then the priest would say this Let Messiah come that he might pour out his water on us enter Jesus If anyone is thirsty let him drink from me You see the timing of this. And in the celebration of this Feast of Tabernacles, as this is going on, Jesus then, in a loud voice, says what he does there in verse 37. Anyone is thirsty? Let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Look, the priest just got through reading Isaiah 44.3 and Isaiah 12.3 and got through saying, may the Messiah that they didn't recognize was standing there in their presence pour out his water on us. And Jesus is basically using the Feast of Tabernacles to open their eyes to say, hello, Messiah is standing right here. And if you would drink from me, you will have rivers of living water that will flow from you. And then John tells us, look at verse 39. 
By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Gospel of John is an interesting take on the life of Jesus. He was absolutely a man who experienced things as a human, but he's also God. And so because of that, he's able to do things that are unthinkable to the average human. But it's clear to see through this book that Jesus is anything but average. He's the Son of God. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus and what he's done for you? Perhaps you'd like some prayer support in what you're learning or growing in. If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? We'd like to invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. You can find out service times and other information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and even download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and hearing some things from the book of John that may be life-altering for you. We look forward to you joining us again for our next edition here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know